This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Optum, a health services innovation company dedicated to helping people live healthier lives and helping make the health system work better for everyone. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Healthcare challenges in America were substantial even before COVID-19. The lack of cohesive data sharing and a fragmented system often resulted in poor yet expensive care for patients. In this segment, former CDC Director Tom Frieden will discuss how COVID-19 and the expansion of mass data during the pandemic could lead to a more integrated healthcare delivery system in the future. Let's listen. Well, good morning. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, an anchor of the Health 202 newsletter here at the Washington Post. And today we'll be discussing America's healthcare future. My first guest is the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, and he was also the director of the Centers for Disease Control under President Obama. Uh, Dr. Tom Frieden, welcome. Thanks. Good to be with you, Paige. You know, it's an understatement to say that we're in a real tough spot uh, on the pandemic right now. I know yesterday we had 1,500 deaths, and um, the sad reality is it, it looks like uh, COVID is going to be the third top killer for 2020 in the U.S. Um, and I know, you know, we could talk about a lot of different reasons why the U.S. has really struggled to control the virus. But from your perspective, can you can you kind of talk about what you see as the, the top factors in the U.S. healthcare system sort of contributing to why we're in the situation that we're in right now? I think there are um, overall societal or governmental factors and then healthcare system factors. In terms of the societal response, what we've had really is the failure of federal leadership. Even now, more than six months into the pandemic, with more than one American dying every minute, there's no clear national plan, there's no set of objectives, there's no organized response, and there's not specific enough guidance to states. That's despite a lot of hard work being done by a lot of people within the federal government. In terms of the healthcare system, we have so many problems, it's hard to know where to start. First, we're not nearly safe enough in our healthcare facilities. In an average year, 70,000 Americans are killed by infections they pick up in the hospital or other healthcare facilities. So we need to make healthcare safer for patients and for healthcare workers. Second, we have a very disorganized system, so it's difficult for clinicians to find out the history of their patients and for patients to get continuity of care when they go from one place to another. And third, we have a very weak primary healthcare system and one that really isn't based on maximizing health. Really, if you step back, big picture, what do we want from our healthcare system? Not complicated. It's not employment, it's not revenue, it's not profits, it's not employee benefits either. What we want from our healthcare system is health. And yet we don't organize with that principle in mind. And to do that, we will need really a revolution in supporting primary healthcare as the center of our healthcare so that every one of us can have our own doctor or other clinician who we can rely on, turn to, who knows us and knows our history. Some people are fortunate to have someone like that and that's great and that should be strengthened, but way too many Americans don't. 
I know that you've you know, shied away from uh, criticizing too harshly perhaps the administration or the CDC, um, but I do want to ask you, do you think the CDC deserves any blame for this? Are there any ways that you would criticize the agency? Or conversely, do you think the agency has been unfairly criticized at all? Well, uh, both actually. Uh, on the one hand, the failure of the test and especially the failure to correct the error with the test for three critical weeks in February was a very serious problem. And there needs to be an independent investigation of why that happened and how to prevent anything like that from ever happening again. So that's a, a serious problem. But there are thousands and thousands of public health professionals working around the clock at CDC to protect you. Americans are voting with their clicks. So we've already had, uh, we've seen more than 1.6 billion clicks on the CDC website. It's a stupendous number. And you've still got excellent guidance on the CDC website. Lots of information for individuals, for businesses, for schools, for colleges, universities, healthcare facilities, and other. It remains one of the great public health entities anywhere in the world. But what's happened really is that it hasn't been allowed to do what it does best. It hasn't been allowed to explain to the American people what's happening, explain as we learn what we're learning, and it hasn't been setting the policies. And that's really both unfortunate and unsafe. It's one of the reasons for our federal failure. Blaming the CDC for the US failures is like blaming someone who's been bound and encased in cement for failing to swim. Do you worry um, that the response uh, is going to damage sort of the future reputation of the C kind of CDC, kind of at a time when a lot of Americans, uh, led by President Trump in some ways, are feeling more hesitancy to believe public health officials? We've seen unprecedented hostility toward undermining of, sidelining of public health, not just at the federal level, but in some states and cities and in some places around the world. It's as if the, the movers and shakers of the world, the politicians and business uh, titans of industry looked over at public health in the middle of the most disruptive public health crisis in a century and said, nah, we're not gonna do that. But if you look around the world at places like New Zealand, Iceland, Senegal, Rwanda, Uganda, the places in the world that were guided by public health and fully supported public health are doing better. They have fewer deaths, they have less disease, and they have less economic devastation. They're getting their economies back faster. Their kids are going to school. We have a way to get through this. It's not by sidelining public health, it's by supporting public health. Public health isn't a blockage in the road to recovery. Public health is the route to recovery. Right, and to your point, um, you know, we have seen unprecedented numbers of local public health officials uh, either be forced to resign, fire, uh, fired, retire. Um, does that concern you when you see those developments at a time when people need to be listening to public health officials? We, we definitely need a reset in our approach to public health in this country. There's no doubt that there are weaknesses at every level, federal, state, and local, and some of those are the result of decades of underfunding. Some of those are the result of the difficulty of public health intersecting with our healthcare system. But we need to move forward. We need to make sure that we never again are this underprepared for an emergency. And even in a year when we don't have an emergency, we have outbreaks, we have preventable illness, death, injuries, disabilities. We can do so much more with our public health system. 
we can be so much healthier. We can go about our lives and reach more of our potential. Our kids can grow up without addiction or obesity. There's so much that we can do if we rely on, invest in, and improve public health. And that's why I think we need to change fundamentally the way we fund public health programs. Right, and on that note, I know that you have called on Congress to pass a new stream of funding for threats like COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you think we need another stream of funding? Having spent many years advocating for more resources for public health, frankly, mostly unsuccessfully, uh, what we've come to recognize is that there are different types of money in Washington. There is uh, what's called discretionary budget, and that has a cap. So long-term support for public health will always lose in discre discretionary budget cap approaches. There is a mandatory or sometimes called entitlement funding that was tried during the Obama administration with the prevention fund, and that became a piggy bank for, frankly, both Republicans and Democrats to take money away from public health. So that's not going to work. Then you have supplemental money, and that was tried after Ebola with the Ebola supplemental. That was really helpful, but it's time limited. And with supplemental one-time money, you can't effectively build programs. You can't hire staff, enter into partnerships, hold companies accountable. So that's not a way to build public health. We need a new way. And that way could be what we've called the health defense operations budget designation. And that would have two essential components. One, that it's discretionary, but budget cap exempt. That means that legislators don't have to make these terrible choices between do I fund Head Start or cancer research or Alzheimer's research or protecting Americans from a pandemic that might not happen. In that choice, that last one fails and loses if we don't have a separate designation for that. The second component is what's called a bypass professional judgment, technical term, but fundamentally it means that it's the professionals at the different agencies, CDC, FDA, maybe agriculture, NIH, provide to Congress what they need in order to meet the vision of a safer uh, America. And for that, you'd then have uh, the Congress and the public able to know what do we need to keep Americans safe and we can actually do it without having to rob Peter to pay Paul. So this is, we think, a promising approach. There are other approaches, uh, but one way or another, we need to hit the reset button here. It's inevitable that there will be another pandemic. It's not inevitable that we will be so woefully underprepared for the next one. I want to ask you about something uh, in the news over the last couple of weeks, and that is the way in which hospitals are reporting COVID data to the federal government. And there's been a lot of controversy, as you know, around this new system set up by HHS, whereby hospitals, instead of sending that data directly to the CDC, instead of it goes through a private con contractor to a database, which is then go going straight to HHS. Um, can you give us your perspective on that? Is that a good move? Is it solving any problems here? I think we have to wait and see. It's too soon to say right now. Uh, the federal government, the HHS and the White House have said that this is going to result in a better system. We are seeing a higher rate of reporting. That's undoubtedly related to the fact that when they made the change, they also said you can't get remdesivir, a drug that helps people with severe COVID unless you report to the system. But what we need more broadly is really a new platform for public health informatics in this country. And that has to be at the federal level, state, local, county level, 
also has to include all providers. It has to be easier for everyone to use, and it has to be public and transparent. The public reporting of key indicators is enormously important. We need to know our risk, we need to know our response, and we need to know our enemy. And unless we get that kind of reporting nationally and at state and county and city levels, we're fighting this epidemic blind. Well, and it's been clear that we've ha we have had a lot of trouble getting COVID data quickly. Um, it's a real problem. And I'm wondering, what do you think are the biggest data holes right now, both on the federal level and then on the state level? Well, there's one emerging challenge, and that's looking at the percent of tests that are positive. Turns out that's measured very differently in different parts of the country. For some, it's the proportion of patients tested who are positive. For others, it's the proportion of all tests that are positive. We like the patient's measurement, but most places can't do that yet. Uh, but what's changing is the rapid antigen tests. There's the possibility that as those are scaled up, public health will lose sight over how many people are testing and what the results are. That's something that has to be addressed. But to me, the biggest problem, the really biggest problem, the bottom line of our data gap is that we're not looking at our performance. We're not seeing, for example, what proportion of tests are coming back within 24 to 48 hours. We're not seeing what proportion of patients are isolated quickly after they provide a test. We're not seeing what proportion of contacts are warned so they can protect themselves and their families on time. And we're not seeing what proportion of today's cases were yesterday's identified contacts told to quarantine, quarantined so that the virus stopped with them. These are the most important indicators of the response, and yet very few places anywhere in the country are reporting them. And what gets measured, especially what gets measured publicly, can get managed. And we need to do a much better job managing this outbreak, because if we don't control COVID, COVID will continue to control us. As I like to tell my daughter, uh, you want to be done with COVID, but COVID is not done with you. Um, but I want to ask you about contact tracing, because I feel like, you know, myself and other reporters wrote a lot about this during the lockdowns in the spring. And I think, at least speaking for myself, you know, we were placing a lot of hope in this idea that through the summer we'd be doing this testing and then we would have the capabilities to do the contact tracing. And it seems to me a lot of that has fallen by the wayside. Do you see any communities in the U.S. really doing contact tracing well? How would you kind of grade that overall? Overall, we're, we're not doing well. And when there is explosive spread, it's difficult or impossible to do contact tracing well, both because there are so many patients to be um, interviewed and supported, and because there are so many potential exposures occurring. So in places of the country with 10, 20% positivity rates, really almost everyone has to assume they're a contact. That's why the three W's, wear a mask correctly, and one without a valve, wear a mask, wash your hands, wash your distance is so important, closing bars and indoor dining in those places. That's important to tamp down cases. Once cases get to a lower level, then contact tracing can kick in and be very effective, but it has to be patient-centered. This is not about a call center calling up thousands of people. This is about a disease investigator who has to have the kind of social skills of a social worker, detective skills of a skilled, experienced detective, counseling skills of a psychotherapist, 
public health skills of an epidemiologist, it's a tough job. And it means building a bond with the patient so that the patient understands, has their questions answered, trusts, and shares information about their contacts. One contact tracer said to us, you know, most of our time is not spent asking questions. Most of our time is spent answering questions. And contact tracing is an art and a science. There are places around the country doing it well. I think San Francisco is doing a good job. There are rural areas with one, two, or three public health nurses who know their community, who've been doing this kind of contact tracing for decades, who are doing a great job in Michigan, Ohio, and elsewhere. But by and large, this is something that's not being done to the degree it needs to be done. And our organization, Resolve to Save Lives, part of Vital Strategies, works around the world. And what's really striking is how much weaker the US is at this than even countries in Africa, let alone places like Hong Kong and Taiwan, Ch China, mainland, uh, Iceland, Germany. They're all doing this very, very well. It's not a question of quantity, it's quality. It's getting that one-to-one -one human interaction, making sure that the patient is the VIP of the program and contact tracing is a way of supporting patients so that they can be safer and they can warn the people that they may have exposed. You and four other former CDC directors wrote an op-ed in the Post recently saying that President Trump has done more to politicize health care than any other president. What exactly did you mean by that? And also, do you see any way out of the politicization of all of this? Well, if you look at the simple is issue of mask wearing, masks are really important. And it is true that we didn't know that back in January and February. And there's a reason for that. And one of the casualties of CDC not being able to speak with the American people every day or virtually every day, as I did during the Ebola, Zika, H1N1 outbreaks, one of the casualties of that is that Americans haven't kind of walked down the pathway of understanding that the rest of us have in public health. If you look at diseases that are quite closely related to COVID, SARS and MERS, these are close cousins of this virus. They behave the opposite of COVID. With SARS and MERS, the sicker you get, the more and more and more virus you have in your system. And you're maximally infectious 10, 14 days after you get infected. In COVID, it's the exact opposite. You're maximally infectious before you feel sick. And then after two or three days of being sick, you get less and less infectious. And by a week or two after, you're hardly infectious at all. This is the opposite. And that's why masks are so important. So when public health said, everyone should wear a mask to have the president saying, I'm not going to do that and making fun of people wearing masks really, I think, put a very difficult frame on this. Wearing a mask isn't a political statement. It's not in favor or opposed to any politician. It's opposed to the virus. There's only one enemy here. The enemy is the virus. And the more we work together, the more we can fight the virus. The virus, um, really exploits any weakness, any split in society, whether that's systemic racism or the way we treat our elderly or bad infection control in hospitals or partisanship. If it allows, if it divides us, it can conquer us. And the more we unite, the more we all wear masks to protect all of us, the safer we'll all be. 
But one thing also, there's not one answer here. Not staying home, not banning travel, not wearing masks, not testing, not contact tracing. And as an epidemiologist who's spent a few decades fighting infectious diseases, one of the things that's so frustrating is this concept that if we just do this one thing, we'll be okay. Well, if there is one thing we should do, it's to support and be guided by public health because that will give us the kind of comprehensive response that learns week by week, day by day, month by month, so we can chip away at this risk and get our economy back, get our society back without risking lives unnecessarily and avoidably. We started off this segment talking about systemic issues with the U.S. healthcare system, and I'm wondering, do you see any positives coming out all out of all of this in terms of reforms, uh, ways that we can sort of bring a really fragmented system together? One way I'm thinking of is telehealth, where use of that has exploded. But you know, I guess to end on a note of optimism, do you see um, any reforms, you know, sort of being getting some steam because of the way the pandemic has affected all of us. I, I do think telehealth is a very positive development, and I think CMS has done an excellent job of promoting and allowing that in both Medicare and Medicaid. So I'm encouraged by the growth of telehealth. Telehealth services can be very effective. They have to be structured so that they don't leave anyone out, older people people without broadband, people who are less computer literate. But telehealth is a great technology and it's probably advanced by years in just a few months in the US. I think the greatest potential here, and we should, as the saying goes, never let a crisis go to waste. The greatest potential here is to rethink and restructure how we pay for and support both public health and healthcare. And in healthcare, I hope what we'll see is a transformation and focus on primary care. The data is very clear. We pay top dollar for some of the worst health outcomes of any well-off country in the world. And this isn't because of malfeasance, this isn't waste, fraud, and abuse, this isn't doctors and nurses not working really hard and supporting patients. This is because the structure of our system. We need to pay for healthcare to maximize health, and we need to put primary care front and center in that. And I hope that that will be one of the real impacts of this pandemic, a stronger public health system, a stronger primary health care system that keeps Americans safe and healthy. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today with Dr. Tom Frieden. Dr. Frieden, thank you so much for joining us today. Paige, thanks so much. It's been great speaking with you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.